From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast. There is so much great audio to listen to out there, and more and more coming every day. It deserves a place of honor, a moment to shine, an entire festival dedicated to celebrating and sharing such amazing work. Enter Third Coast, a nonprofit arts organization in Chicago which does just that. Third Coast is the home for narrative audio storytelling. All year round, we push the boundaries of this craft, and one of the most important ways we do so is through the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition, honoring the very best audio documentaries of the year. On Best of the Best, we bring you the winners of that competition, plus behind-the-scenes interviews with the makers. This hour, we're showcasing winning stories that were released across multiple episodes. Great news for those of us who like to binge listen. I'll be honest, that's the only way my house gets cleaned. We start with a category that awards just that, the Best Serialized Story Award. This year, we got over 40 entries to this category. We've come a long way since the first season of Serial. One story told week by week. The 2019 Best Serialized Story Award went to an investigation that took over a year to report. And the reporting was so exhaustive, so meticulous, and so successful that it caught the attention of the United States Supreme Court. More on that later. In small-town Mississippi, a white prosecutor has tried a black man six times for the same crime, a quadruple homicide. For 23 years, that man, Curtis Flowers, maintained his innocence on death row. The team from In the Dark investigated the case and discovered prosecutorial misconduct, false confessions, an alternate suspect, and a pattern of racial bias. Here's an excerpt from In the Dark, Season 2. In the state of Mississippi, just off Highway 55, there's a town called Winona, population about 4,000. On the west side of Winona, in the middle of a neighborhood with lots of houses close together, there's what looks like an abandoned parking lot. It's the kind of place you might drive by and never give a second thought. But if you slowed down and looked more closely, you'd notice a row of bricks poking out of the grass along the edge of a lot and a set of concrete steps that lead nowhere. If you got out of your car and walked onto the lot, you'd find an old desk overturned in the grass. This abandoned lot used to be a school. Back in the 1960s, it was an all-black school. But in 1970, the federal government ordered the city of Winona to integrate its schools. One night, four years later, a fire broke out. Within hours, the entire block-long brick building had burned to the ground. Nearly everyone I talked to about the fire, black and white, told me they think it was arson and that it was related to integration. Right next to the field where the school used to be, there's a small white house with a porch on the side. Hello. Well, come on in. You must be Archie. Lola Flowers. Hi, nice to meet you, All Madeline. Right. All right. Lola and Archie Flowers had been married for 54 years. They'd retired a few years ago, and although they had five other children and many grandchildren, they devoted most of the past 21 years to their son, Curtis. 
21 years. That's how long Curtis Flowers has been locked up. For a quadruple murder, he says he didn't commit. Lola and Archie Flowers told me they'd spent all their savings on his legal defense, and they said there'd been other consequences as well. Lola told me that one night in 1999, when she and her husband weren't home, a family member staying at the house heard a loud bang. And then, all of a sudden, the house was in flames. It burned to the ground. The fire department never reached a final determination as to what caused the fire, but Lola told me that after the fire, someone told her they'd heard something from a white person in town. Somebody said they heard, say if they let that nigga go, another house gonna burn. What do you think of that? <laughs> what do you think I think of it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did somebody probably set it a fire? Before all this happened, before the fire and the trials and the appeals and death row, Curtis was just a kid growing up in a small town without any big plans for his life. Curtis was just joking. Oh, he tried to keep everybody laughing and joking and going on. And even his teachers will tell you, that's all he liked to do at school, you know, clown around and joke with them and everything. So He so keep you laughing, you know, he's always with so. Curtis graduated last in his class from high school. In his high school yearbook photo, he's wearing a suit and black bow tie. Curtis's father, Archie, said that if Curtis was known for anything at all, it was for his singing. Me and him, you'd sing together. You know, he loved to sing. <laughs> say you love Jesus. Say you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you ought to show some sign. Oh, he can tell that one Oh, you, you ought to have me. <laughs> yeah, I, I ain't just bragging on but he's good. Curtis sang with his father in a gospel group. I have a video of Curtis performing back then. Curtis sings the lead. He's wearing a gray suit and tie and smiling. Every time, every time, every time. Usually in a story like this, you hear from the person in prison. But that's not going to happen in this story. The Mississippi Department of Corrections won't allow me to interview Curtis Flowers. And so you're not going to hear from him. In the summer of 1996, Curtis Flowers was 26 years old. Curtis didn't have a criminal record. He was living in Winona with his girlfriend and her kids, in a house a few blocks from his parents. That summer, he got a job at a white-owned furniture store in town called Tardy Furniture, doing odd jobs. Curtis only worked there for three days, such a brief period of time. Really, almost no time at all. The job didn't work out because Curtis, by all accounts, didn't take it that seriously. He damaged some stuff that he was supposed to pick up for the store's owner because it fell off a truck. He just stopped showing up to work. 13 days later, on the morning of July 16, 1996, four people were found shot in the head at the furniture store. They all worked at the store. There was a store's owner, a white woman, the bookkeeper, another white woman, a white teenager, 
and a black delivery driver. With shock and disbelief, onlookers stare at Tardy Furniture Company, site of Winona's quadruple shooting. There didn't seem to be much evidence in the case. No one witnessed the shootings. Nothing in the store seemed to have been disturbed. The only obvious clue were a few bloody shoe prints made by a Fila Grant Hill basketball shoe. But some family members of the people who were killed had an idea of who could have done it. This Curtis Flowers, you know, he, um, he kind of gave my wife the creeps. This is a man named Benny Rigby. His wife, Carmen, was killed at the store. When she told him to do something, he'd stand there and kind of stare at her and look her up and down, you know, and just like he was staring a hole through her or something, you know. Did, did he threaten her, just, do you know? No, no, no. It was just, like I say, it was just, it was just his demeanor. Like I say, when you ask somebody, uh, you need to go load this up or something, and they stand there and look at you and grin at you and won't, won't move for a minute or two, you know, it's kind of weird. But, um, but anyway. Another family member told investigators similar things, and law enforcement followed up right away. They brought Curtis down to the police station for questioning. Curtis told the cops he didn't do it. Investigators didn't believe him. They tested his hands for gunshot residue and found a single particle. A few days later, they searched the house where Curtis was living with his girlfriend and her kids and found a shoebox for Fila Grant Hill's shoes. And investigators started to put together a case against Curtis Flowers, based entirely on circumstantial evidence. In 1997, 15 months after the murders, the local district attorney, a man named Doug Evans, brought Curtis Flowers to trial. The trial lasted five days, and when it was done, an all-white jury deliberated for just 66 minutes before reaching a verdict, guilty. And they sentenced Curtis Flowers to death. But the trials of Curtis Flowers were only just beginning, because the prosecutor, Doug Evans, would go on to try the case again and again and again. After that verdict in 1997, Curtis Flowers appealed to the Mississippi Supreme Court, and he won. But he didn't get out of prison, because the prosecutor, Doug Evans, just decided to try the case again. In 1999, Curtis Flowers was convicted and sentenced to death for a second time. Again, he appealed, and he won. A death row inmate will get a new trial. Curtis Doug Giovanni Evans Flowers. just tried it again. In 2004, Curtis Flowers was convicted and sentenced to death. He appealed, and he won. Decision. Justices agreed with Flowers' attorney that prosecutors... The reason that Curtis Flowers kept winning his appeals is that the Mississippi Supreme Court kept finding that the prosecutor, Doug Evans, had broken the rules. He'd misstated the facts. He'd asked improper questions. He'd even violated the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution by striking black people off the jury because of their race. The case kept going. In 2007, the jury hung. They couldn't decide on a verdict. The fourth trial of Curtis Giovanni Flowers has ended in mistrial. Doug Evans tried it again. In 2008, another hung jury. Jurors deliberated more than 10 hours. Doug Evans tried it again. Again, Curtis Flowers was convicted and sentenced to death. In case you're wondering, this isn't double jeopardy. Because double jeopardy would be if you're tried again after you've already been acquitted. And Curtis Flowers has never been acquitted. That last conviction was in 2010. The verdict is still under appeal. Six trials over 21 years. 
Curtis Flowers has never gone home. The exit from one courtroom was just the entrance to another. If a case has been tried six times, something has gone wrong. In the summer of 2017, I moved to Mississippi with a team of reporters and producers to find out what. And one of the first things I did was read the transcripts of the trials. And right away I learned that the district attorney Doug Evans' case against Curtis Flowers wasn't built on any one piece of evidence. Police had found a single particle of gunshot residue on Curtis Flowers' right hand. But Curtis could have picked that up in the police car on the ride to the station, or while he was sitting in an interrogation room. There was a shoebox for Fela Grant Hill's shoes that police had found at Curtis's girlfriend's house. But at trial, Curtis's lawyer said that shoebox actually belonged to his girlfriend's teenage son. The teenager testified that he'd outgrown the shoes and thrown them out. There was no DNA match, no video surveillance footage, no witness to the murders, no fingerprints linking Curtis Flowers to the crime. Investigators didn't even have the gun that was used. But what the DA, Doug Evans, did have was a story. Here's what Evans told the jurors. Curtis was angry because he'd lost his job at Tardy Furniture. So he woke up early one morning, walked across town, and broke into a car and stole a gun, a 380 pistol. Then Curtis walked home. Later that morning, Curtis left home again and walked all the way back across town and went into Tardy Furniture and shot all four people there in the head. Then Curtis Flowers went home. No one saw Curtis steal a gun. No one saw him walk in or out of Tardy Furniture. Instead, Evans lined up a string of witnesses who said they had seen Curtis Flowers walking this route on the morning of the murders. From his house on the west side of Winona, to the parking lot where he stole the gun, to Tardy Furniture, and then back home. When these witnesses testified at the trials, they were convincing. They would get on the stand and point at Curtis and tell the jurors, that is the man I saw that day walk right by my house. On the stand, Curtis denied killing anyone. He said he wasn't fired from tardy furniture. He just stopped showing up to work. After the defense was done questioning Curtis, the prosecutor, Doug Evans, had his turn. And this questioning of Curtis would be the longest conversation the two men would ever have. Doug Evans said, You were going to show Miss Tardy. You were going to go down there, and you were going to take a gun, and you were going to get any money that you could get your hands on, wasn't you? No, sir, Curtis said. It went on like this. You shot everybody in there in the head, didn't you? No, I didn't. But you made some mistakes, didn't you? No, sir, I didn't do it. You didn't wash all the gunshot residue off your hands. I didn't do it. And you forgot and stepped in the blood. No, sir, I didn't. That is just a few of the mistakes you made, isn't it? No, sir, I didn't do it. That was an excerpt from In the Dark Season 2, winner of the 2019 Best Serialized Story Award. 
It was created by lead reporter and host Madeline Barron for APM Reports, with senior producer Samara Freemark, producers Natalie Jablonski and Raymond Tungakar, reporters Parker Yesko and Will Kraft, and editor Catherine Winter. Our judges said, while the team's stellar journalism is front and center, In the Dark also manages to weave a tapestry of voices and scenes that gives the series texture, creating the sensation for the listener of having spent real time in Winona, Mississippi, on the streets and on front porches, and, more tensely, in the DA's office. The series informs in ways that will make you gasp, about a deeply racist criminal justice system that allows and rewards flagrant abuses of power again and again. At our 2019 ceremony in Chicago, producer Samara Freemark came on stage to accept the award and said this about the genesis of the piece. We started working on the story that would become season two of In the Dark uh, back in 2017 when we got a tip about a man named Curtis Flowers. Our team started reporting the story and that one first initial tip ended up turning into a multi-year investigation. Um, Our team moved to Mississippi and we spent a year basically just heading out and knocking on doors. So we talked to hundreds of people, uh, we collected hundreds of hours of tape Uh, We really tried to embed in the community, so we went to church every Sunday morning, we went to the local high school football game every Friday night, Um, and all that reporting eventually became season two of In the Dark. And that season was a a deep dive into what had actually happened in the case of Curtis Flowers, but it also told a larger story about race and jury selection and the power of prosecutors. After we released the podcast, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided to take Curtis's case. And our findings were included in briefs that were filed before the U.S. Supreme Court. And this past June, uh, the Supreme Court overturned Curtis's latest conviction. Though the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Flowers' conviction for the murder of four people at Tardy Furniture, he's not free. The indictments charging him with capital murder, handed down years ago by a Montgomery County grand jury, still stand. On November 5, 2019, D.A. Doug Evans was re-elected in Mississippi's 5th District, where he served since 1991. He ran unopposed. While intricate serialized stories have skyrocketed in popularity here in the U.S., they've also been popping up on podcast feeds globally. Now, we turn your attention to one of those international stories, Price of Secrecy. In Iran, discussions around child sexual abuse have been completely absent from social discourse until very recently. With the advent and popularity of social networking, however, this conversation has found new light, making way for the podcast that we're about to hear. Price of Secrecy was produced by Zoha Zokai in close collaboration with lawyers, psychologists, psychotherapists, and social activists that deal with this issue professionally in Iran. With their help, Personal stories of survivors have been collected and dramatized into hybrid forms that blur the line between fact and fiction. Price of Secrecy 
won the 2019 Best Documentary Foreign Language Award. Here's a short excerpt of the piece in Farsi. This story starts with an accusation of sexual assault against Sina, an 18-year-old male, made by Tanaz, a 15-year-old female. We first hear from the victim's divorced mother, who partially blames herself for what's happened. Then we're briefly introduced to the parents of Sina, the accused, who are trying to figure out just what has happened. An expert then explains that the conviction of rape carries a death sentence, which is why many people are hesitant to come forward and often retract their complaint. The story unfolds to eventually reveal that while Tanaz and Sina have had a sexual relationship, Tanaz withdraws her complaint against him and reveals that her mother's brother has been abusing her from the time she was eight to the time she was 12 years old. This story is a carefully woven tapestry exploring the taboo subject of child sexual abuse in Iran. Price of Secrecy won the 2019 Best Foreign Language Award. It was produced by Zoha Zokai and edited by Rob Shiliga. Zoha, who's based in London, made this series with the goal of sparking conversation amongst Iranians on one of the most popular encrypted social media channels, Telegram, where the entire podcast series was released. To hear a subtitled version of the full story, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. We sat down to talk to producer Zoha Zokai about the making of this series. It really started from coming across a lot of personal stories of people who've experienced sexual abuse. And initially, I wanted to create a piece of work that not only explores the issue of sexual abuse, but also has a bit more to it in terms of like bringing some information and um, some kind of like helpful material to the audience as well. And I initially started looking at creating an interactive online drama, but I realized that the medium, the format, you know, interactive online drama, which is something that requires you to sit behind a computer, the very format was not accessible and not very familiar still, particularly to my audience, which was like young Iranians. So um, that brought me to the kind of question of accessibility. You know, I, I realized that if I want to talk about an issue that is missing from the sort of social consciousness, and I want to bring this topic out, what is the most accessible way of doing this? And at the same time, you know, we're talking in the context of uh, Iran, where not all websites are available. So for example, video format might be a bit complicated to access. And that kind of brought me down to sort of voice, you know, and use of sound. Files are much smaller, so they can be transferable easier. And that's how I began thinking about Uh, creating the podcast. 
So given your desire to make the series accessible, can you explain more about the way that this story was distributed? So, so in Iran, at the moment, um, we have got this messaging application, which is called Telegram. It's very much similar to Viber, WhatsApp. The feature Telegram has is that it allows for channels to be created where people can subscribe and you can distribute content. And so what we did was we created a Telegram channel for this podcast, which we, uh, on a weekly basis, distributed the the episodes. I think this Mm -hmm. is very useful and effective in the context of Iran, where uh, always the flow of information can cannot always be that easy, but also because we because I worked with psychologists and you know psychotherapists in Iran, the material was also used as educational purposes. While we were disseminating the podcast, I collaborated with a, an organization that focuses on educating people about prevention of child sexual abuse in Iran. This is a very much of a new organization. They've only been working. For in Iran for a couple of years. So there were like different different ways that the podcast was spread. It, it seems like throwing light on a subject that's co- sort of been shrouded in secrecy and darkness for so long is a, a little bit of a daring act. And I don't know, did that worry you or scare you at all? I feel like the timing was good. It, it feels like people are ready to hear about this. So therefore, no, it didn't really scare me. If it was maybe 10 years ago, things would have been very different. But because because of um, the changes that have recently happened in the whole sort of media landscape within Iran as well, and also because of social media, people are kind of more openly able to talk about certain things. And because of that, I felt like the, the space is, is ready. And it didn't really particularly feel like I'm alone by myself breaking, breaking a taboo, if you like. You know, there's a lot of work that is happening at the same time, but it's all very new. So this series is scripted and it's fictional, but it's definitely rooted in true stories. And that interplay makes for something very interesting. I mean, we're used to seeing reenactments in like documentary film, but we're not so much used to seeing it in audio. How do you see this in your work in audio? I call this work a hybrid work. So it's neither documentary nor fiction. It sort of sits sits in between. So in, in factual storytelling, you know, in documentary, what I think can often be overseen is like the motivation that exists behind the whole process. And I'm not using motivation in a negative form um, because it can sometimes be unconscious. And what I mean by that is that, for example, why is someone sharing their experience? And also as someone like myself, who, for example, if you like a reporter, documentary maker, a director, what are my motivations behind taking this story and sharing it with a with a wider audience? And I think this kind of motivation in the documentary world is not often sort of directly addressed. I mean, for me, it was very important to sort of bring these complexities into the work itself. So from the very early on, I found it difficult to call my work a documentary because for me, there's no point blank way of actually retelling or representing a story. This whole process of telling a story, there is always a level of sort of fictionalization that happens inevitably through taking someone's story and passing it on to an audience. So that's why I kind of focused on creating a hybrid work, because I think hybrid storytelling, because it very much blurs the line between what is factual and what is fiction, it encourages the audience to ask this question about 
the nature of what it is that they're hearing, you know, asking themselves this question of why am I hearing this? Is this is this is this an actual event? Why why do I need it to be an actual event? Or why am I even asking that question? Or who's representing this story? Where do they come from? What's what brings them to tell me this story? Was there any big surprise that you came away with? when you were done or in the making of it, was there something that you didn't know or that you, I don't know, just came at you unexpectedly from the project? There, 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 were, there were a few things, you know. Um, one thing which is a drive for me to continue making the second series is um, the sort of the prejudices that still exist. So, so I worked with actors. And all these um, actors, when I talked about, about this issue with them, they all sounded quite sort of open and willing and in a way on the same page as I was. But, but then when we started working together and when we were sort of discussing characters, reactions, stories, elements, sometimes I would hear things that would really shock me. Um, you know, the taboo nature of the issue is so deep that we unconsciously sometimes say things that, you know, show that. And, and that was quite quite a shocking thing for me, that even though people are saying something, but deep down inside, they're thinking something else. And how do I how do I access that? You know, how much more work needs to be done, basically, for this? That was Zoha Zokai, producer of Price of Secrecy winner of the 2019 Best Documentary Foreign Language Award. Coming up, a series that looks at depression through a lens that's sound-rich, deeply personal, and at times, delightful. Therapy, uh! Therapy, uh! You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition, made possible with generous support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation. In this hour, we're focusing on three stories that unfold over multiple episodes. Every year, after an exhaustive season of listening, the Third Coast staff reserves one honor, the Director's Choice Award, for a story we believe worthy of recognition. This is no easy task. The quality, craftsmanship, and originality of so many of our entries deserves attention. But we only get one award, and this year it goes to a heartbreaking and complicated, but also darkly funny and charming, series about depression. Talk about walking a fine line. Often, when people talk about struggles with mental health, there's an assumption that the first step towards a solution is, quote, just asking for help. But Honor Easley knows it's never that simple. She's been there and back and has years of phone recordings and diary entries, which form the basis of her podcast. No Feeling is Final, a story of navigating broken systems and our worst personal moments. Each episode of the series starts off something like this. Hey, so just a heads up, this show touches on some heavy lifting feelings territory. 
including what it's like to feel so hopeless that you want to die. It's not graphic, it's not that kind of show. This is a memoir show. So it's about my experience trying to figure out some big stuff. So of course, it's only one person's experience. One more thing, it's a show about feelings, so it may bring up some feelings. If it leaves you with a few things rattling around your brain after, you might want to go do something nice for yourself. Like me, right now, I'm at the dog park with my boyfriend's dog. Our judges said right away this story establishes itself as a new form, a personal narrative about a devastatingly serious, dark subject treated with unexpected lightness and humor. It delights, intrigues, informs, and sucks you in from word one. Here is No Feeling is Final. Sometimes when I'm having a panic attack, when it's fire town in all my gooey human insides, I think I actually must look really serene. It's been happening a lot lately, most mornings actually, for an hour or two. You wouldn't know from the outside though, because I'll just lie on my back in bed. I'll have my hand on my heart and I'll breathe. I do this sequence of counting and breathing over and over, and this sequence is just complicated enough to hold my attention away from the voice. Oh my God, why can't I just sleep? Have you ever thought about how you never really had a real job? You know, like your parents do. Oh my God. Are you worried about that? What are you doing? Do you think your parents are actually proud of you? Or, like, pretend proud? Do you remember that awful photo someone took of you five years ago? That's probably on the internet somewhere. And if you ever become successful, someone somewhere will find it and put it on the front of TV Weekly. Oh, my God, what are you doing? I'm trying to sleep. Oh, I'm sorry, you're trying to sleep. I'll just leave this dossier of potential bad consequences here in your bedside then. Good night. What are you reading? Mm, What the voice in my head says. This is my boyfriend and I on one such morning, but this time I'm trying something different. I feel silly. Well, kind of point. (laughs) This isn't you that should feel silly. We've told your mean voice to, like, come to the front of the class and read what's on the note. My therapist suggested this. Getting the voice out of my head and into the world. He told me I should, like, spit it out if I have to. I decided writing it down was more sanitary. It says, you've been been fucking fucking around around too much much already. already. You don't don't know how to be normal. normal. Fuck, this is so evil. It's really embarrassing. You You don't don't know what you're doing. doing. You You made made the wrong wrong decisions. decisions. You You can't can't enjoy enjoy your life like like other people. It's a good one. You've You've always been been a bit of a mess. Lovely. You're You're too too far far behind already. already. You've You've been been wasting your time. You don't don't know what you're doing. Even if it gets better now, it's just going to get worse overall. That was a real punch in the guts. 
you'll always come back here and then every time will be worse. I sound bored, don't I? Well, there's a lot more. About how I'm not a good sister or daughter or person or how I'm not cut out for the workforce. There's a lot of stuff about the workforce. I sound bored because I am bored. I've been dealing with this voice for 15 years, but I'm also just plain embarrassed. I hate admitting to these thoughts and how much of a grip they have on me for good reason. This is so out of touch with reality. I mean, the mean voice is really talkback radio. (laughs) You've got Fox News in your head. (laughs) And the voice doesn't just visit in the mornings. Um, so I got offered another job today. Uh-huh. Ah, uh, so Graham got offered another job. I think that might be the second time this week. Huh? Maybe you're really just not cut out for this. Are you listening to me? Oh, God, I wasn't listening. Oh, I'm such a piece of shit. No. <laughs> I was in my brain shame cave. Oh, dear. <laughs> what happened? Maybe you have a mean voice of your own. You know, that voice that tells you you shouldn't have eaten that ice cream or you're an asshole for running late to that meeting again. For me, most of the time, it's just kind of there in the background. It's like having a really yappy little dog that can talk and follow you everywhere and call you an asshole. Hey, you're an asshole. You're an asshole. You're an asshole. You're an asshole. You're a fucking asshole. You're an asshole. You're an asshole. Hey, oh, hey, hey, hey. You're an asshole. You're a fucking asshole. I reckon it's kind of good to have a voice in your head that asks if you're being an asshole. It's a good way to avoid, you know, being an asshole. I think they call it a moral compass. But sometimes the voice is just calling me an asshole because it can, because it knows I'll believe what it says. The voice is a car crash that lives permanently inside my head. And I am a rubbernecking onlooker, pretending to be walking to work, but really just wanting to get close enough that I can see how bad it really is. As if knowing more will help me to avoid my own car crash. And this is really how an inane critical voice in your head can become an overwhelming force of doom. The voice kind of goes into overdrive, imagining all these car crash scenarios and insisting on thorough, proper investigation of all of them. The problem really is that holding a magnifying glass up to the potential car crash of your life can leave you with this flailing, disproportionate sense of reality. Just like how media sometimes puts awful ideologies on moral par with reasonable ones in the name of balanced debate, this voice takes charge on the back of much of the same arguments that allow neo-Nazis to end up on mainstream talk shows. Rat race got you down? Shouldn't we at least listen to what they're saying? Understanding is the first step to peace, right? What do they say? Keep your friends close and that asshole dog inside your head closer? But who am I to judge? 
I've spent 15 years giving equal seating to a voice that seems to think that constant ridicule is a great motivational tactic. (sighs) And Graham's right. Sometimes the voice really is out of touch with reality. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, even on stage playing a song at a fancy writers' festival. So please join me and let's get our clapping into formation to welcome to the stage Honor Eastley. Yes? Oh, cool. Hey, I'm just going to say a few words and then I'm going to play something. The voice is still there. Um, Way to not do a sound check. Now there's a shitty static sound coming through your guitar lead. Thank you. All right. In my bio, it says I'm a professional feeler of feelings. But I don't really think the voice is like Fox News. Because I don't watch Fox News. I think it's something else. Sometimes I think the voice is more like Beyonce. But like if Beyonce was really, really mean... And I have to hand it to the voice. Just like a world-class entertainer, it really knows how to elicit a response. If this voice is Beyonce, then my body is 100,000 screaming fans saying, whatever you say, Beyonce, oh, you think I'm a piece of shit. Oh, you're so right, babe. I love you forever. Just like the real Beyonce, the voice is designed to be captivating, mesmerising, impossible to look away from. Even if it gets better now, it's just going to get worse overall. Over the years, I've been asked by a number of different therapists where the voice came from. I've never really been able to give them a conclusive answer, but I know it's been there for a long time. We found the tape. Gray and I are at my parents' house. We're digging through boxes in my old room. That's now really a just a glorified storage space. Looking for what is yeah, my earliest memory of the voice. Uh, what about him? Put yourself in the picture. Fall down the side of the Titanic, escape from past and future worlds, or ride a virtual 3D roller coaster. These are just some of the thrills you can have on video forever when you experience the movie magic of special effects, new secrets behind the screen. Something I like about the phrase on video forever given how hard we have to look for this, and now have to look for the technology to play it. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't as future-focused as they thought they were. Back in the 90s, my family went to this place called ScienceWorks. It was kind of like a theme park, but everything was science-related. We went there a lot as kids. My memories from it are this hazy concoction of reality and things that I'm sure a child invented fiction. An old-style train out in the cafeteria, a contraption filled with ever-flowing honey, Morgan Freeman over the loudspeakers. You know, those fake real kid memories. On one particular trip, they had this exhibition where you could videotape yourself in front of green screens in all manner of precarious situations falling off a cliff, escaping from lava, inside a stranger's fridge. But apparently the one most seared in my mind was perhaps the least death-defying, singing karaoke with my family, while green-screen ghost images of our silhouettes shadowed each of us. At the end of the day, you got a VHS tape. 
this VHS tape that 21 years later I now hold in my hand. Did I watch this tape a lot as a kid? You kids could have got up to anything <laughs> in there. But this one I have like seared into my brain the rock band bit where like on a green screen karaoke to a song and I was just doing a pretty normal shy kid thing and I, I don't know if you remember I was like I don't want to be involved do you remember no okay yes it's like the first thing that I remember like seeing of myself and really regretting a lot Oh, Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, like an unreasonable amount. Mm. Yeah, of like replaying and being like, you should have been less shy. You should have been but more performative. Yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah, so you regretted the um, not perhaps getting getting more involved into it. Well, I think Amy's in the. As I remember it, Amy's out in the front of the video, and she's all like, I don't know. She has a ponytail and is pretending to sing. But I'm all just, like, very shy and in the background. But you were a bit shy and in the background, even at ballet. Was I? Yeah. I thought I was rambunctious. <laughs> no? You were a little bit hesitant when you were probably that age, whatever the age that was. Yeah, I was going to say, how old would I be, like, yeah. eight? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe even younger. And that is my earliest memory of The Voice. I don't even entirely remember what the voice was saying. Here's your time to shine, and yep, yep, you blew it. I just remember replaying this video in my head at night over and over again. Didn't I hear you want to be a famous singer? Cute twin triple threats like the Olsen twins? But you can't even perform karaoke. The voice berating me for my shyness, for my missed opportunity for family karaoke, for being plain, unspectacular, unremarkable... For being a kid, really. I was, like, trying to think of when was the first time that I was, like, I can remember being an anxious little petal. And that's the first one, is that video. I don't know how many times I must have watched it, or if I did watch it at all. <laughs> the, but it's it was, seared it's in seared your in brain. my brain of, like, mm. the first moment of searing rumination. And they do stay there for all your life. <laughs> What? <laughs> Mom, I thought it would go away. No, 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 no. Are you saying that I might regret this for the rest of my life, Mum? We all have those thoughts, the sticky memories of what we've done wrong, the feeling of dread. But I think my mum's voice must be really tame in comparison to mine. She knows what happens to me when the voice gets really loud. Are you ready? I don't know what the song's going to be this time. I never do. It's a song, it's a song about Graham. He's maybe so I'm sitting on my bed. <laughs> I've got my eyes closed. i got my hands over my ears. I'm singing a stupid song that I'm making up on the spot. Or maybe it's a great song. I can't tell. I've got my hands over my ears. Right now, Grey is fetching my nightly sleeping pill. At the moment, we do this every night so that I can't see or hear where he keeps them. 
Mum says he's a keeper. Right now, for practical reasons, he is, in fact, the keeper of all the medications I'm currently taking. Why is Graham hiding my medication? Well, you know that voice that I'm so prone to rub a neck over? Sometimes I fly too close to the sun on that one. I stare too closely at that repeating gif of how I'm an asshole, a fuck-up, whatever else bad, (sighs) until I'm not merely observing the car crash, but I'm actually inside of it, thinking that my only way out of it is my own death. That's when shit gets real. That's when I start to hide drugs from myself because I'm afraid that if I don't, I might die. (laughs) You see, it's more than just panic attacks. so fucking tired and I just I just don't want to deal with this shit anymore I don't want to keep coming back here The voice makes me feel like I want to die. I have to go to work. I have some logistical questions before that happens. Are you afraid of trying to die today? Um, I probably won't do it while I'm at work. Do you want me to drop you off and pick you up? (laughs) If you drop me off, that would be handy. I'll see how I go. Do I need to worry? No. Well, we were an honest answer. It's okay if I need to worry. I'm not going to kill myself. Yeah, I'm worried about that after, but 
I'm just calling you. I'm just calling you. I can recognise that certain corners of the media these days are really designed to sell fear in order to sell ad space. I can also recognise that the voice in my brain is promoting an incredibly captivating form of fear, my own fear, back to me so that it can purchase more real estate in my mind. But the voice isn't me. It's just telling a story. The story is that I'm a fuck-up or that I've ruined my life. It just happens to be a really, really captivating story. More than once, this voice has driven me close to dying. But on good days, I can hold her at arm's length. I can hold her just there for as long as I need to and just breathe. That was an excerpt from No Feeling is Final, winner of the 2019 Director's Choice Award. The series was written by Honor Eastley with executive producer Joel Werner, producer Alice Moldovan, writer Graham Panther, and sound engineer Russell Stapleton. It was created at ABC Audio Studios under the guidance of managing editor Kelly Reardon. Honor came all the way from Australia to accept her award at our ceremony in Chicago. Here's what she said on stage. Five years ago, I was working a very menial job, and the thing that was my friends was podcasts. I was by myself a lot of the time. I was listening to a lot of Planet Money and a lot of Ira Glass. At that very same time is actually when I um, went into a psych hospital and I was there during mental health week. So there was a lot of mental health programming on TV at the time. And there was kind of two stories. The first was um, I had anxiety and then I asked for help and then I was fine. And then there was this other type of story. This is where people started getting talked about in third person. Um, that their life was just become this kind of uncontrollable storm uh, and that it was ruining the lives of people around them. Uh, And for me, sitting alone at 2am in this psych hospital watching these shows, um, at that point I'd spent about 10 years kind of in and out of the mental health system and I was like, I'm definitely not in this first story. So I was like, holy crap, like I must be going towards this one because these look to be the only two options. So that is why at that time I started recording all these audio diaries. At that time I had no idea what I would do with them, but what I knew that I wanted to do was 
show that these experiences of hopelessness, of despair, of like existential dread were not separate from normal life, but often they kind of meshed in with them. And that not only could we represent just people's pain, but we could also show like the humor that went with it. We could show the tragedy that came along, the tenacity, the optimism. And there's something quite amazing about being able to make something and to feel like I can like say goodbye to some of it. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast, sharing the best documentaries of the year. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. Third Coast Executive Director is Shirley Alfaro. The Artistic Director is Maya Goldberg-Safer. And the Program Director is Emily Kennedy. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent nonprofit arts organization originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. You can hear winning pieces from all 19 years of our competition, as well as hundreds of outstanding audio stories from around the world at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. There, you'll also find links to the rest of each of the series you heard in this hour. Thanks for listening to Best of the Best.